MRAP snack. It probably goes without saying that we're talking mostly about indirect hyperbilirubinemia, and the thing that we all care about is kernicterus. So when bilirubin crosses the blood-brain barrier, it puts the child at risk for this permanent disabling neurologic condition where they can have cerebral palsy, often with chorioathetoid movements, gaze paresis, hearing loss, and several other issues. This usually happens with what's termed hazardous hyperbilirubinemia, which is defined as a total bilirubin greater than 30 milligrams per deciliter. At some point in residency, medical school, probably both, we all learned about hyperbilirubinemia and kids and the triggers to start that UV light therapy or, or other interventions. And I'd venture a guess that while most of us remember there is a nomogram, most of us don't remember all the details of that nomogram. But that's okay because we know where to find it, where to access it, so that we can use it when that patient comes in. But of course, sometimes these guidelines change and we need to be aware of those changes and how it affects the management of the patient in front of us. And that's exactly what Eileen is getting into because the American Academy of Pediatrics back in August 2022 updated their guidelines and we need to know what the updates are. Now, for starters, I feel like hyperbilirubinemia falls into a couple different categories. There are the pathologic kids, the ones that have things like G6PD deficiency, who tend to get jaundiced within the first 24 hours. Their rate of rise tends to be very high. And these don't tend to be our problem in the emergency department because typically they're picked up prior to hospital discharge. We tend more to see the physiologic jaundice kids, those with polycythemia and an immature liver, perhaps ones that are breastfeeding and have suboptimal intake. And this tends to peak on day three to five after birth. There's also a form called breast milk jaundice. And this is a prolonged form of hyperbilirubinemia in children that are breastfed. These are kids that are eating well, gaining weight well, but they can have unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia for up to three months. It's really common in breastfed kids. The thought is there's something in breast milk that tends to prevent the conjugation of bilirubin and fortunately seems pretty benign. This is not something we tend to treat, and it's not something that tends to cause kernicterus. Now, I realize this sounds like I'm kind of against breast milk and breastfeeding. That's not the case at all. I breastfed all four of my kids, and I think it's great when you're able to do it. The guidelines agree with me on this. They do not feel, in general, like breastfed infants who are adequately hydrated should routinely receive supplementation. So if a kid is a little bit jaundiced and is doing well with their breastfeeding, They definitely should be feeding at least eight times a day, but they certainly don't need to be supplemented with formula or water or sucrose solutions or Pedialyte or anything else. Now, there are a number of different risk factors for hyperbilirubinemia, things like being a little bit premature, having a sibling that required phototherapy for hyperbilirubinemia, but these aren't particularly relevant to us in the emergency department. They're more for pediatricians that are deciding when to follow up a child after hospital discharge. For us, what's more important are the risk factors for neurotoxicity, because that's what we're going to look at when we have a patient in front of us. And that's if a child has a gestational age at birth less than 38 weeks, if you happen to know the albumin and it's less than three, if they have isoimmune hemolytic disease, which typically is manifest as a positive DAT or direct antiglobulin test, or if they have some other hemolytic condition, if they're septic, or they've shown signs of clinical instability within the previous day. 
All of these are going to make you more likely to have neurotoxicity at the same bilirubin level. And this is going to play a role when we decide who gets admitted for phototherapy. There are new curves, new hyperbilirubinemia curves in this rendition of the guidelines. And what they do is they have a different curve for every gestational age from 35 weeks, that's the earliest age covered by this guideline, up through 38 weeks plus. And they have one set of curves for children without any of these risk factors and a separate set of curves for children with one of these risk factors. Kids who are above the threshold for their particular gestational age and whether or not they have risk factors get phototherapy and those below don't. Now, these curves have slightly different numbers than those that came with the 2004 hyperbilirubinemia guidelines for which this is a revision. So make sure that you're using the latest curve when you plot your patient's bilirubin. Big important point in the update in these guidelines, new curves to determine whether the patient needs phototherapy or not. And it doesn't just take into account the gestational age, but also those neurotoxicity risk factors, the low albumin, the presence of isoimmune hemolytic disease, sepsis, and then that clinical instability within the last 24 hours. And again, it's going to mean that we really need to make sure that we are using the right curves to plot these results on to determine what our patient needs. And one other important point of clarification there is that many of us use Billy Tool, an online calculator to determine the need for phototherapy or not. That online tool, as of this recording, has not been updated. In fact, there is a banner at the top that says this has not been updated for the new guidelines. So look out for that. When it's updated, we can go back to using that. But for now, until it's updated, we're going to have to use the curves themselves that the AAP has put out. One thing that comes up frequently for us is transcutaneous bilirubin. We do have a monitor in our ED. The nice thing about these is they don't require a blood draw. They're super quick, really easy to use. And the transcutaneous bilirubin measurement correlates relatively well with serum concentrations, especially in infants where the bilirubin level is less than 15. In these kids, the transcutaneous bili is typically within about three milligrams per deciliter of the serum bili. So what does that mean? Well, if you have a kid come in who's three days old and you do a transcutaneous bili and it's eight, you're pretty much good to go. You could be off by a lot and it's still gonna be okay not to give that kid phototherapy. On the other hand, if you're within a few milligrams of the phototherapy line, that's a kid that you probably need to follow the transcutaneous with the serum bili. So the formal recommendation is that the serum bili should be measured if the transcutaneous bili exceeds or is within three milligrams per deciliter of the phototherapy threshold, or if the transcutaneous bili is 15 milligrams per deciliter or more. So once you get your level, what do you do with it? Well, we talked about putting it on the phototherapy curve, and if the child qualifies for phototherapy, that's what they need. That will break down the bilirubin into a water-soluble form, get it out of the patient with very little adverse events. That can be done in the hospital or in a family that's very well connected to a pediatrician that provides home bilirubin therapy, they can do that at home as well. Although formula may lead to a more rapid decline in bilirubin, in general, in most kids, we recommend continuation of breastfeeding if the child is breastfeeding. Now, some kids are really, really, really high, and that's when you have to hop over to the graph that looks at exchange transfusion levels. Those are scary high levels, and these are really concerning patients. 
So if the level looks really high, take a look at that exchange transfusion graph for the patient's gestational age and their risk factors. And if the child is within two milligrams per deciliter of needing an exchange transfusion, it's time to go full bore with the therapy. So these kids are going to get IV hydration. They're still going to get phototherapy. You're going to send more of a panel of labs for things like albumin, CBC, basic metabolic panel, type and cross. If it's a patient who has isoimmune hemolytic jaundice, you probably want to consider giving them IVIG as well. And then obviously watching them, hoping it goes down and you don't get to those exchange transfusion levels. Now, when you're putting patients onto these graphs and deciding phototherapy versus no phototherapy, we're always using the total serum bilirubin. That having been said, at least once, somebody should probably fractionate it and look to see how much of it is unconjugated and how much of it is conjugated or direct. For patients that have a direct hyperbilirubinemia, that's a whole different animal. Those kids are not going to need phototherapy. In fact, they're not going to really benefit from phototherapy, and they're really not at risk for kernicterus unless they have a high indirect bilirubin as well. For those kids, the concern is much more for cholestasis and doing a workup for dangerous causes of cholestasis like biliary atresia. Cutoff values for direct hyperbilirubinemia used by different societies are anywhere between greater than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter and greater than one milligram per deciliter. We used to say that the direct bilirubin concentration had to be greater than 20% of the total. That is no longer required. So I would say if you have a direct bilirubin level of 0.3 or greater, it would be prudent to get a neonatal or pediatrics consult to decide if that patient needed a workup for direct hyperbilirubinemia. If you're interested in more information, take a look at the September issue of Pediatrics, where the hyperbilirubinemia guideline revision for newborns 35 weeks and more is published. And keep an eye out for the updates being incorporated into BiliTool, B-I-L-I-T-O-O-L, because once you get the hang of it, it's actually a really quick and easy way to plot your patient and to see if they need phototherapy or not. M-Rap Snack.